You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Ballet in Balanchine's company was all about the female, the idealized female, and putting her on a pedestal. And one of the aspects of being a Balanchine dancer was to have your own perfume that was nobody else's perfume. Balanchine was so fond of perfume that leaves the scent of that dancer behind. So it's as if the dancers have a physiological, energetic scent or pulse or resonance or or field that is absolutely indelible. And nobody else has it. It's their own fingerprint. So we each had to have our own and we doused ourselves. And we're we're speaking about bathing in perfume. We were supposed to leave our scent behind Mm. so that he would know who was there before him. Why? It was just part of the culture. The same as people dressing up for class. They would just make up to the hill, the just-so chiffon skirt, perfect clean shoes and hair done and their own smells. All looking good, smelling good, all the volition in place, all the the readiness of being chosen, selected. For my heart podcasts and Rococo Punch, this is the turning, room of mirrors. I'm Erica Lance. Part four, the muses. The dancers in Balanchine's company wanted to present themselves well. They wanted to please Balanchine, catch his eye. 
They knew he was watching all the time, in that studio without windows, and from the heavy curtains of the theater's wings. By this point, Stephanie Saland was an insider. She'd been in the company for a while and had navigated the culture and ethics of Balanchine's world. We rarely got any guests from outside, but Balanchine actually really did favor a few people who came in, and one was Guylaine Tesmar from Paris Opera. Guylaine Tesmar was a star ballerina. She danced all over the world. And even though she wasn't trained by Balanchine, she came to guest dance with the company. Years later, I went to visit Guylaine in Paris in her apartment, and we had a conversation about her experience. And here's this person who was an étoile at Paris Opera. She's a very, very gracious woman. And we sat in her most wonderful apartment. She said, you know, the first time I went in, I'd just never seen anything like it. It was like a harem. Like a harem? Yes. And we were so accustomed to it, but everybody in that room was just waiting, 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 waiting to be the one. The concubines are a harem. Waiting to be the one for Balanchine, essentially? Yes. In his early years, certainly, he did either marry or was with six of his ballerinas. And I say his ballerinas, they really were part of his life, and each of them quite different, and the stories around that quite different. And there are many, many stories to tell. This was a time when there really were no clear boundaries, And the desire to please and the confusion around that with young women definitely was interwoven into that. I wanted to ask you about Apollo. Mm. Um, Could we talk about Apollo a little bit? We can. I watched a video of you dancing it recently. And um, maybe could you describe that ballet? Oh, dear. (laughs) That takes a few hours. (laughs) I, I can't even begin to speak to Apollo with anything that would give it its due, honestly. It is so rich and so ahead of its time. He was beginning to show us how time and space and bodies and mind and music could be sculpted and merged. Apollo was Balanchine's first major collaboration with the composer Igor Stravinsky. It was the start of what would be dozens of projects they partner on, and it launched Balanchine into international fame when he was just 24. The ballet follows young Apollo, the Greek god of music, as he is visited and instructed by three muses, the muse of poetry, the muse of mime, and the muse of dance and song. At first, Apollo doesn't seem to know what he's doing. He's like a shaky colt or a a young deer that isn't quite on its legs yet. And then you see him find his ground. You watch him become an artist and a god. During the ballet, each muse dances for Apollo. They teach him, they inspire him. At times, it's hard to tell who's in power. They're all learning from each other. 
When Stephanie danced it, she played the muse of poetry, Calliope. She's the first of the muses to dance for Apollo. And as she dances for him, her body suddenly caves in on itself, as if in emotional or physical pain. Each time you hear the cellos make a sudden low sound. Then she reaches out while holding one hand to her heart, as if she's finally expressing what's within. Her mouth opens as if to speak. This taking from the gut, from the core, from the soul, through the throat, through the mouth, and out into the world. It is, again, I think, uh, in that way that is so Hallmark Balanchine about the importance of women in a man's life. Only now, that, of course, the women are muses and goddess creatures on Mount Olympus. <laughs> and that they are going to teach this young god all that he needs to learn. They are the mentors, the guides, the muses. Beyond the basic story, the ballet itself is beautiful. The movements feel classical, yet totally modern. At times, Apollo holds all three of the muses' hands and leads them, or moves them around in a chain, tangling them with each other in this abstractly shaped knot. It's interesting to watch how the power shifts throughout. Who is leading? Who is learning? Apollo controls and manipulates the muses. Other times it seems he struggles to contain them, struggles to keep up. Ultimately, Apollo takes his place as a god. Armed with the knowledge of the muses, he's now powerful over them. It is his deep bow to the idealized female and their role in shaping the world, shaping that world, which is otherworldly. An ode to his muses. Over the years, Balanchine would have many. When he became very interested in someone, they might have been 16 or 17, they had certain exquisite gifts, like maybe an exquisite arabesque or jumping or maybe turning or the way the arm, the upper body work together. Lynn Garifola is a dance historian who lives in New York. She saw many Balanchine ballets during the dance boom in the 70s. When Balanchine was inspired by a dancer, he'd choreograph dances on her, as they call it, and not just teach her the steps, but really dance through it with her in a way that felt special. And in many cases, he'd fall in love with her. I think for Balanchine, working with someone and dancing with someone was perhaps the only way in which he could create a really close relationship. Balanchine was totally absorbed in the art form, and he asked the same of his dancers, to fully surrender to the art form and to his vision. Holly Howard was one dancer Balanchine was drawn to early on in the 1930s. She danced the role of a muse in the first performance of Apollo in the United States. Holly Howard, a wonderful American dancer. She was arguably Balanchine's first American muse, like the first American dancer that he became really obsessed with and that really drove his art. Jim Steichen researched Balanchine's early career. He scoured the diaries of Lincoln Kirstein, 
the man who invited Balanchine to the U.S. to start his work. The diaries gave Jim a window into the dynamics of those early years in the United States. Balanchine took a romantic interest in Holly Howard, and they were kind of a couple. You know, everyone's super young. (laughs) And at one point, they were touring the East Coast. On the bus, Balanchine sat with Holly, his current muse. When they were in Princeton, Holly Howard, after their show, decided to go out with some of the Princeton men. And the next day, when they're getting back on the tour bus, Balanchine's sitting next to a different dancer and says, oh, well, you know, you decided to go out to the Princeton boys, so you can sit next to someone else. So there's that classic manipulation power move. We don't really need to know too many of the details um, to know that there's some games being played and some power dynamics at play. Because even though they had a relationship, Balanchine was still Holly's boss. The other chilling tidbit in Kirstein's diaries makes reference to one day that Holly Howard had had her fourth abortion by Balanchine. It's hard to know what that really means, but you can read between the lines and think about what was happening. When you say read between the lines, like how do you read between the lines there? So clearly they were sleeping together. When you say, use the phrase fourth abortion by Balanchine, does that imply essentially the fourth termination of a pregnancy that like Balanchine was the father? That's my understanding. You know, we know for a fact that Balanchine didn't want his dancers, especially the star dancers, to get pregnant and have children. So it's, you know, do we have any idea how consensual their relationship was? Do we have any idea how consensual those, you know, decisions to terminate were? Do we have any idea what Holly Howard went through to go through those procedures while still dancing at a very high level? You know, that's where you realize that the cult makes him into this entirely benevolent figure. When Jim says cult, he thinks there's almost a cult around Balanchine. He also calls it the Church of Balanchine. Fervent admirers who don't want anything bad said about him. Writers, critics, and dancers who'd rather sweep unflattering stories under the rug or minimize those stories' effects. You know, we will probably never know the full story, but she, this is kind of the height of her career. She kind of fades away after this. These relationships often faded away. Eventually, Lynn says, he'd always move on. Well, this is a little bit like the Six Wives of Henry VIII. Not quite, but a little bit like that. Balanchine married or partnered with a number of these dancers, five to be exact, Tamara, Alexandra, Vera, Maria, and Tannekill. But even beyond those marriages, he developed other romantic relationships, which always seemed to be intertwined with his work in some way. Some of these relationships ended because the ballerina's careers led them elsewhere— to cabarets or to Hollywood. But more commonly, the relationships ended for a different reason. I think there's a sense in his work that the ballerina, the woman who for a certain moment is ideal, is never fully attainable. Or perhaps once she appears to be attained, then perhaps he loses interest and moves on to something else. 
to someone else, she's no longer ideal. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Through Balanchine's 20s, his 30s, and his 40s, his pattern of having relationships with his dancers persisted. Sometimes he was decades older than his romantic counterpart. His company grew. He had more and more talented dancers coming into their own and inspiring his choreography. In 1954, he was 50 years old. And he sees this talent around, and he's making ballets for them all. And then there's Allegra Kent. It's a very young Allegra Kent. This is Siren City. The traffic doesn't stop for sirens, and it's a free for all. Um, <laughs> my name is Allegra Kent. I was born August 11, 1937 on the same day that Edith Wharton died. Turning producer Aylan Lance Lesser and I met Allegra Kent in her studio apartment in New York. Walking in felt special. Allegra Kent was one of those muses who stood out. She was somebody Balanchine bent the norms for. I've known who she was since I was a kid. I read one of the books she wrote cover to cover many times in middle school. She was my idea of the perfect ballerina. 
It's hard to think of a more iconic dancer than Allegra Kent. Um, yes. But your wall is just covered in pictures. Well, most of it is career pictures, but I need more children and grandchildren. At 85, Allegra's fingers are thin and wrinkled. She gestures to the photos on the wall in slow, circular motions. They're mostly of Allegra, gorgeous and moody black and white images of her in the most beautiful poses, mid-dance. So over here, seven deadly sins. There are shots of her backstage, one of her balancing on point that had been in Vogue magazine. This is Russia, 1962. My name is over there. A poster in Russian with her name on it. And then Balanchine and Allegra, both squatting mid-motion. They're dancing together, side by side. Next to it is a photo of the two of them on stage in front of the curtain. She holds a bouquet of flowers. A bow with Balanchine. Serenade, Japan. Scattered among all this are these blue and black images. They look like ink blots. Rorschach tests. When we get closer, we realize they're dark limbs in bright blue water. They're photos of Allegra doing exercises in a pool. She used to put flotation devices on her arms and legs and move in the water. Pushing air down in the water. It was easy to go up, but hard to go down. It was like contrary to gravity. I have a certain contrariness in my nature. (laughs) In these pictures in the pool, her body reflected itself cut in half. The pool became a mirror. You can't see her torso or her face, just legs and arms reflected back. Surreal symmetry. Part of her is always hidden. What do you think was your favorite ballet to dance? That is very hard to say. (laughs) It's like asking what your favorite child is or something. (laughs) (laughs) Or or your favorite flower, because then I think, oh, all the flowers that start with A, those are all my favorite. All the ones that start with B, yes. All the ones that start with P, yes. All the ones that start with W, (laughs) so I could throw out an answer, but I think I won't. (laughs) Throughout our interview, Allegra's thoughts felt watery and mysterious and hard to pin down. She often left our questions unanswered. Allegra was born in Santa Monica, California, to two Jewish parents. They divorced while she was still young. In California, for a while, everyone changed their religion once a week. But... My mother decided that we should be Christian scientists. According to Christian science, there's no pain. It's very complicated. The Christian scientists around her believed the physical body had no substance, that pain and pleasure weren't real. And Allegra took that seriously. When she danced, she told herself the pain wasn't real and kept dancing. In this religious household, Allegra learned to obey authority, and she learned to keep unpleasant feelings hidden. With ballet, even as a kid, she realized she had found a way to express herself without revealing her thoughts. Dance was how she fought with her mother. Dance could bypass words. That's something Balanchine would understand. He was known for speaking through movement. 
For the rest of Allegra's life, she'd feel that displaying emotions made her vulnerable. So she didn't. She held them secret. And that's what made dance special. When Allegra was 14, she and her mother moved to New York so Allegra could pursue dance. She auditioned for a scholarship at the School of American Ballet. Her mother did the talking. They brought a letter of introduction from her previous ballet teacher, who wrote Allegra's dancing was demonic. Balanchine observed part of a ballet class to evaluate her. She says even at the time, she knew this was a metaphysically all-or-nothing moment. She had the feeling if Balanchine rejected her, she'd have some kind of breakdown. As Allegra danced, she mirrored his face with her own, almost involuntarily. His face gave nothing away, and neither did hers. She wouldn't let him see how important she knew the passing moments were, or how eager she was to get a scholarship. After four short minutes, he left. It was all he needed. She got the scholarship. A year later, she was invited to be an apprentice in the company. Soon she took her first ballet classes from Balanchine himself, from Mr. B. He liked the way I danced. He liked the way I moved. One day during class, Balanchine said to her, you can do anything. Maybe I was a little different in the way I approached things, in the way the way I heard the music. So, yes, the music came first, of course. Allegra understood Balanchine's philosophy, the music came first, and the way he talked about it felt almost magical. One evening performance, we were doing a Mozart ballet, in Salzburg, and he said, last night I spoke to Mozart, and he he started talking about this experience. I wish I'd written it down, because as he was speaking, one moment I was crying, and the next moment I was laughing, because it was so glorious, it was so moving, it was so... And actually, I think he did. You think he spoke to Mozart? I think he communicated with the greatness of the past. Could you tell us about Balanchine's relationships with his dancers? He fell in love with a number of his dancers. He married some of his dancers. And I think that, as far as, that was in the early years. And then his life became much more complicated. And it's so complicated, I can't talk about it. But she would write about some of it in her autobiography. And things certainly would become complicated. Allegra writes, she noticed a pattern in Balanchine's love affairs. There was a time limit, around seven years. Balanchine got older, the women stayed the same age. Usually between 15 and 23, Allegra wrote. As an apprentice, Allegra found herself in classes with dancers she admired including some of Balanchine's former and future wives, who danced side by side. When Allegra was an apprentice, Tannikil LeClaire was on the rise. Tanny, she was called. She was eight years older than Allegra and looked like modern art, Allegra says. One day, 
Tanny came in with a bandage on her nose. Apparently, she'd kicked so high to the front during a grand battement exercise that she kneed herself in the face. Allegra was impressed. Allegra's mother and the other mothers talked about Balanchine constantly, and that included his romantic pursuits. They became experts. They said Tanny had caught Balanchine's eye when she was 11 years old. Later, when they went on tour, Tanny and her mother stayed in a suite with Mr. B. In 1952, Balanchine married Tanakil. She was 23, and he was 48. He'd found his new muse. Allegra's mother didn't like this pattern of women. Allegra writes in her autobiography, In my mother's mind, there was only one type of pain that could be truly serious, and that would occur if Balanchine got me. Nothing was as terrible as his making me another Lolita in his ballerina gallery. In 1953, Allegra was still an apprentice, and then she got the news. I was invited into the company. I was 15. She said yes. What would you say were some of the, like, pivotal moments or turning points as a dancer? Definitely the unanswered question. That launched you as a star. That was the first piece Valentine did for me. The first ballet, I was 17. Balanchine was 50. Allegra had been in the company two years, dancing in the corps. This rehearsal was different. Just her and four men. Balanchine told Allegra to take her point shoes off. She would do this piece barefoot, but her feet would never touch the floor. Balanchine had her climb on top of the ballet bar. He placed the four men in front of her, and then he said... Now, Allegra, step on the men's shoulders. The men gripped her ankles, and she stepped up. Eventually, on stage, the men would wear all black. Their costumes dissolved them into the dark backdrop. I'm wearing an all-white leotard, nothing else, hair down. The piece was called The Unanswered Question. It began with one man, bare-skinned, the only one not in black, backing onto the stage, looking up. A man comes out, searching, seeking, trying to feel the truth of what this image is. And a woman is being held totally upright and progressing slowly. While the visible man reaches for her, the men in black carry her forward. She's floating above them all, standing, then sitting in midair, then dipping backwards in a somersault threaded through the men's legs and looped back up in a slow-motion dive. It's like watching someone swim in a watery, black void. And the bare-skinned man, the seeker, reaches for her. Is she an image? Is she on the unobtainable? She is everything, but he can't. She's out of reach. And at one point, she sort of curls into his arm, but immediately the men take her away. And she's threaded in, and at one point, she's held on high. And I slowly tilted backwards and fell. Fell straight back from standing on their shoulders. You could hear the terror from the audience. It 
sounded like a gasp. Of course, the man caught me. As they did every time. But I realized that Balanchine loved to create fear, (laughs) dramatic fear, in the audience. And that was definitely one of those moments. And then the ballet progresses. I'm threaded through their legs. I'm hauled around like rope around their waist. I'm held on high, and I do arabesque. And and then I leave. I'm taken away. And the man, the seeker, is still following me, but this time he's in back. He's not in front. She has moved past him. And I'm unobtainable. It was the beginning of her life as a Balanchine muse. During rehearsals of the unanswered question, Allegra felt Balanchine was in love with her. The question hung there. What did Mr. B ultimately want from her? She thinks at that point neither of them knew. What was your relationship with Balanchine like? He choreographed. He chose me. I danced. And very warm. Not personal. Very warm. He'd ask how I was and things like that. Allegra and Mr. B's connection felt close and unspoken. It would never turn romantic. In the unanswered question... Allegra says she was a sensual, spiritual object sought by a man who could never possess her, the object of a quest. But she eludes the man. The mystery is never solved. The question never answered. That's the dynamic of all the roles Balanchine would make for her, she writes. A suppressed inner life and unanswered questions. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone knew Balanchine thought his dancers shouldn't have children. He'd say to them, anyone can be a mother, but how many could be a ballerina? How many could dance Balanchine's choreography? But Allegra got married. She had a baby, despite Balanchine's wishes. I did what I wanted to do. That was part of my nature. (laughs) Allegra speaks highly of Balanchine. She doesn't seem to want to get into the nitty-gritty of relationships or company dynamics. But in her autobiography, Allegra writes that leaving the company for any reason was a dangerous thing. Balanchine might not want you back. Disloyalty hurt him. He expected allegiance. Allegra writes that although he didn't overtly encourage awe or worship, in a subtle way, he used the idolatry of the dancers to keep the company together. I think the first baby Balanchine thought was an accident, but the second one, he thought, wait a minute. When Allegra came back from childbirth the second time, she writes that he told her in a serious tone, now Allegra, no more babies. Enough is enough. Babies are for Puerto Ricans. I don't know if this was a racist joke or a racist attempt to rein Allegra in. Either way... She thought, this man directs the company, not my life. But he welcomed me back into the company, and he always welcomed me back, so. What she didn't realize yet was that she'd never be back. Not really. While she was having a baby, Balanchine had turned to someone new. Someone young. Someone who had become his most famous muse of all time a 15-year-old girl named Suzanne Farrell. Balanchine and Suzanne Farrell were joined at the hip, this couple, this, you know, you know, you could call it an artistic power couple, you could call it a, you know, muse, uh, artist. There was obsession in both directions, I think. Suzanne is probably Balanchine's most iconic dancer and his most complicated relationship. She declined to speak with us for this podcast, but she did write a memoir about this time. 
Early on, when she was at the School of American Ballet, it was clear that Balanchine was drawn to her. She had physical qualities he was looking for, a natural musicality, and a willingness to try anything he asked. Balanchine choreographed the first ballet specifically for Suzanne when she was 18. It was a pas de deux between a young girl and an older man. She realized it was about the two of them. Later, she would write, It did not occur to me that I was entering into an emotional abyss so deep that perhaps I should decide if I thought it might be worth it. It was worth it, but I never once stopped to consider that question. In retrospect, I realized that the fact that I had no outside points of reference meant that I made various important decisions in a social vacuum. Balanchine and Suzanne worked closely in the studio, like creative conspirators, and that trickled outside the theater. On tour in Europe, they spent every evening together at museums or shops or walking arm in arm. Soon Balanchine became Suzanne's whole life. Knowing Balanchine's jealousy, Suzanne felt she couldn't really have other friends. And she didn't mind. Even though Balanchine was 41 years older than Suzanne, there was this romantic undercurrent that was clear to everyone. When she was 22 and he was 63, a newspaper even falsely reported that they were engaged. And Suzanne felt that undercurrent herself. In her book, she writes, quote, It was for him that I felt the first stirrings of adult love, and he was without doubt the most important man in my life. But she knew Balanchine was still married to Tanny that he was living two separate lives, one of which he didn't discuss with Suzanne. So when an audience member began taking special notice of her, she began a new relationship. His name was Roger. He was a couple of months older than her, and when they got engaged, he gave her a pearl ring. Suzanne knew not to wear the ring to the theater. But one day, Balanchine saw it on her finger. He exploded. He ordered her to take it off. His anger frightened her. She obeyed and ended her relationship with Roger. In the end, she said, it was not her decision. It was Balanchine's. A week later, Balanchine came to Suzanne's hotel room on tour. He presented her with his own ring. She writes that when she turned it down, he hurled it across the room. In fear, she dropped to her knees, clambered for the ring under the bed, and put it on her finger. She says, quote, It was never quite clear whether or not the ring was intended to symbolize our present or future union and marriage, but I think, at least to him, it signified an exclusive attachment. To me, it signified love and all its gaucheness, desperation, and beauty. Dancers at the company knew that Suzanne Farrell was off-limits romantically that she belonged to Balanchine. But eventually, Suzanne did start to date someone else again, a fellow dancer in the company, Paul Mejia. They kept it secret, but they couldn't hide it entirely. When Balanchine realized Suzanne and Paul were in a relationship, he did something Suzanne did not expect. This time, he asked her to marry him. But Suzanne couldn't give Balanchine what he wanted. She and Paul quietly married, and that's when things unraveled. 
Balanchine avoided Suzanne, and Paul started losing roles. Finally, one day, Suzanne confronted Balanchine. She would later call that day the most surreal day of her life. She sent Balanchine a note. Stop the retaliation, or she and Paul would leave the company. Not that she thought it would go that far. But Balanchine was still her boss. That night, the Russian wardrobe manager entered the dressing room and slipped Suzanne's tutu off its hanger. She was crying. Suzanne, you're not dancing tonight, she said. At age 23, Suzanne realized her world was ending. She was no longer a member of the New York City Ballet. And, you know, you can imagine someone that young who had built their entire life and identity around one artist, around one company. And Balanchine at that time was such a powerful figure. No other company in America would be able to hire Suzanne Farrell to dance, even though she was one of the preeminent dancers of her generation, uh, for fear of incurring the ire of Balanchine. Balanchine was so fond of perfumes that leaves the scent of that dancer behind. And it still permeates. Teenage Stephanie Saland joined the company a couple of years after Suzanne had been forced out. The muse was still in the air. Her presence lingered. My parents got me as my graduation present, Magrif. A bottle of perfume. And I remember just bathing in the scent. And at the time, um, Suzanne Farrell had gone away from the company. And I got into the elevator, I believe, with Balanchine and Karin von Arlding. Karin was another famous dancer at the company. When Stephanie stepped into the elevator, she says she saw something change on Mr. B's face. A little bit of a, a look of displeasure or surprise or, or unease. And Karin just looked at me sideways and kind of cringed and I didn't know why. And Afterwards, Mr. B got out and she let me know that the perfume was definitely to be discarded. <laughs> it had been Suzanne's perfume. Years later, Suzanne Farrell would eventually return to Balanchine and his company, finally forgiven. They continued to work together for years until Balanchine's death. Suzanne Farrell's story is one of ballet legend now, a piece of Balanchine history that lingers in the air. And not everyone sees eye to eye on it. Historian Jim Steichen is someone who's been publicly critical of how Balanchine treated Suzanne. She's never denounced him for the way that he treated her, but, you know, it was really shocking the way that she was treated. And, it, and it's hard not to think about it in terms of like a, you know, blacklisting of like someone who spurs your romantic overtures, who chooses another man over you, and then you are going to punish that woman professionally and ensure that her livelihood is endangered and that she can't have autonomy over her own career and life. So it's, um, it's a really tricky case. A lot of people have criticized me for kind of parsing it out and writing about it. I don't know how you can call that anything but a, a misogynistic abuse of power. 
and something that, you know, even if she won't denounce him, it's like the actions kind of speak for themselves. This is what Suzanne Farrell wrote in her memoir. Quote, That Balanchine spent his life building pedestals for his ballerinas to stand on is no secret. And although some might protest the position as one of inequality, no one who has ever been there has ever complained. It is the most humbling and beautiful place I have ever been. Balanchine was a feminist long before it was the fashion. He devoted his life to celebrating female independence. End quote. Suzanne, Holly, Tanakil, Allegra, Stephanie, they all performed Balanchine's ballet Apollo. They all played the roles of Apollo's muses on stage. Apollo is such a beautiful ballet, I can't help but love it. But something about it bothers me, too. As much as the muses have their moments, you know that Apollo is the center. The muses are important, but they're important because of what they do for him. Apollo is the god. He is in control. Apollo, or Balanchine, keeps the muse on her pedestal, right where he can always see her. Balanchine has many famous quotations, but maybe the most famous is that he loved to say, ballet is woman. People often quote ballet as woman as a sign of his reverence for the female body and the role of women in his art. It's a phrase you hear all the time. But what does it really mean? How feminist is the phrase ballet as woman? This is the rest of what Balanchine had to say. Quote, Man is a better cook, a better painter, a better musician, composer. Everything is man. Sports, everything. Man is stronger, faster. Why? Because we have muscles, and we're made that way. And woman accepts this. It is her business to accept. She knows what's beautiful. Men are great poets because they have to write beautiful poetry for women. Odes to a beautiful woman. Woman accepts the beautiful poetry. You see, man is the servant. A good servant. In ballet, however... Woman is first. Everywhere else, man is first. But in ballet, it's the woman. All my life, I've dedicated my art to her. Next time on The Turning. Gone unchecked. Bad things can happen. And they did. And then people are scared, you know? People are still afraid to talk. The Turning is a production of Rococo Punch and iHeart Podcasts. 
It's written and produced by Aylan Lance Lesser and me. Our story editor is Emily Foreman. Mixing and sound design by James Trout. Jessica Carissa is our assistant producer. Andrea Aswahe is our digital producer. Fact-checking by Andrea Lopez-Cruzado. Special thanks to Allegra Kent. If you want to check it out, her autobiography is called Once a Dancer. Also to Suzanne Farrell and Tony Bentley, who wrote the memoir Holding On to the Air. And Jim Steichen, whose book is called Balanchine and Kirstein's American Enterprise. Our executive producers are John Parati and Jessica Alpert at Rococo Punch, and Katrina Norvell and Nikki Etor at iHeart Podcasts. For photos and more details on the series, follow us on Instagram at Rococo Punch. And you can reach out via email, theturning at rococopunch.com. I'm Erica Lance. Thanks for listening. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.